0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Radley Balko, who reports on criminal justice, the drug war, and civil liberties for the Washington Post. He was previously a senior editor at Reason and also previously at the Cato Institute. His book with Tucker Carrington, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, was the subject of a previous Free Thoughts episode. Today we're discussing the new edition of his book, Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Welcome back to the show, Radley. Thanks for having me. When did you get interested in the militarization of police? Because it's interesting that everyone now seems to kind of realize this, especially post Ferguson, but in a weird way, it also creeped up on us.
1: Yeah.
2: I think I first um, kind of started paying attention to it in a, um, you know, as part of my beat when I was at the Cato Institute, because I was covering uh, the drug war and, Uh, obviously the drug war was a big um, motivating factor in in the trend toward police militarization Uh, and specifically i I had been um, uh, reporting or covering a couple of uh, no-knock raids uh, that have been done to serve drug warrants and uh, after looking into a few of those cases i started tracking them pretty closely and seeing that they were not only were the raids themselves uh, very common and for kind of low-level offenses. Uh, the number of times police were making mistakes uh, because the, the drug war is fought with dirty information by, ne- by necessity. Um, so innocent people uh, were getting victimized in these raids, as well as you know people who were, at worst, guilty of kind of low-level um, consensual uh, drug offenses. Um, at the time, that was probably in like in the early 2000s. Uh, Cato in 1997 and published a white paper about. Uh, sort of creeping police militarization, sort of looking into the work of Peter Kraska, a criminologist in Kentucky who uh, had documented kind of the rise of SWAT teams across the country. And uh, I guess just from there, it was, um, you know, it, it, you saw some of the sort of excesses of policing, some of the problems of policing culture, but then, and, and some of the and the problems with holding rogue police officers accountable, but at the same time, kind of the level of of accepted uh, force as a matter of policy in police departments across the country was increasing as well. So you had sort of problems with bad cops going off the, you know, uh, violating policies, violating the law. Even you had problems with holding those cops accountable. You had problems with police culture. Uh, but then just kind of, even within all of that, you had just as a matter of policy, the amount of force that, uh, police were permitted to use, for increasingly low-level crimes, um, you know, that ratio was getting out of whack as well. And um, I think I probably, I think the first paper I wrote for Cato on this came out in, I want to say, 2006. Um, But even before that, I mean, if you go back to the 1990s, um, you know, when I was in high school and college, uh, it was the right that was up in arms about police militarization, uh, particularly with the ATF uh, raids on People suspected of violating various gun laws, um, and then you know we had people like T. Gordon Liddy on a show telling uh, his listeners to uh, shoot for the head uh, when ATF agents come into your house, uh, and yet you, you know the NRA calling um, federal police officers jackbooted thugs. Uh, you had Waco and Ruby Ridge, um, so you know I, I think there's this just there's been this continual trend for a long time, but it was also sort of fascinating to watch. Uh, as uh, various parts of the American political establishment get upset about this when it affects their own people, uh, but don't seem to be nearly as concerned when it affects people with whom they disagree politically.
1: How new is this trend as opposed to us noticing it, paying attention to it, or the general political culture being more up in arms about it? Because you look back at, you know, like the LAPD in the 1950s wasn't exactly a bunch of Boy Scouts, or we look at the way that cops treated marchers during the civil rights movement. Like, it seems like cops have always been pretty violent.
2: Yeah, I do think there's a, um, uh, a- a tendency to pine for kind of a heyday or salad days of policing that, that probably never existed. Um, I will say though, that I I do think that the militarization trend is, is something unique. Um, It is even during the kind of the civil rights protest, even throughout kind of labor uprisings and other other civil unrest um, in the United States, we've always had this firm line between policing and the military. Um, We keep them very separate. Um, And, you know, even at the height of the drug war in the 1980s, uh, there was a time when Congress and the Reagan administration wanted to kind of erase that line. They wanted the military to be coming in, doing drug raids, you know, mar- Marines marching up and down city streets. And to its credit, uh, in the, to the credit of our, the health of our democracy, I think, uh, it was the Pentagon that objected loudest and, and actually derailed those plans. But, um, you know, if you, if, the premise behind that is that policing and soldiering are two very different jobs and it's dangerous for a free society to, to conflate the two. Um, you know, I would argue that there isn't much difference between using actual soldiers to conduct domestic policing and taking domestic police and training them like soldiers, arming them like soldiers, uh, giving them kind of a soldier's mindset or mentality and then telling them they're fighting a war of, of various kinds, whether it's a war on terror war on drugs or on crime. Um, you start to erase that distinction um, not by having soldiers do the policing, but by turning your police into soldiers. And I think that's really where it's not that police brutality didn't exist. It's not that racism and policing didn't exist before all this. It's just that I think this is a particularly unique trend and one that um, kind of drives a lot of the other problematic trends in policing.
0: Can you give us a sense of the, the scope of the problem in terms of growth? Because as, as Aaron mentioned, you know, there have been times in the past where some things police did, like say the old third degree uh, were a little bit were worse than presumably what they do now. But when we're talking about, let's say just SWAT raids, uh, what would have been the changes in terms of how many of those are being conducted versus in the earlier days of SWAT teams?
2: Yeah. So um it's hard to, to, put a definitive count on how many sort of SWAT deployments or SWAT raids there are each d- each year, each day in the U.S. Um, Peter Kras- Kraska, the criminologist I mentioned, um, to- sent surveys out to police departments across the country in the uh, 1990s um, and asked them to go back to when they started their SWAT team, how many times they deployed their SWAT team. Um, and, you know, that, that data is only as good as the number of police agencies that cooperated and sent the surveys back. But among those that did... Uh, You know, he estimated. um, I believe it was like in the in late 1970s, there were a few hundred SWAT deployments per uh, year in in the U.S. And and the vast majority of those were for active shooters or hostage takings or bank robberies. You know, a situation where you have somebody who is in the process of committing a violent crime. Um, By the late 1990s, I believe it was up to forty or fifty thousand SWAT deployments per year. So from a few hundred to you know tens of thousands forty or fifty thousand and about 80 to 85 percent of those uh, were to serve warrants on people who were still suspected of nonviolent consensual drug offenses um, typically pretty low-level offenses so you've got this this police police action that you know in the 70s was reserved for these situations where somebody was in the process of committing a violent crime uh, now it's You know, not only is this tactic used, you know, exponentially more often, uh, it's primarily used not to apprehend somebody who's in the process of committing a violent crime, but to serve a search warrant to to investigate somebody who's still merely suspected of a nonviolent consensual drug crime. Um, And the problem with that is that you know, uh, these tactics are extraordinarily violent. There's a very thin margin for error. The police make a mistake. If somebody in the home makes a mistake, there's a good chance that somebody's going to going to die or end up you know severely injured um, and yet you're using these tactics against people who haven't yet been convicted of any crime or even charged for that matter um, and that really I think is is a massive shift in how the government has used this kind of force and violence and it's it's not the sort of uh, uh, policy where there was ever really much public debate it's not like Congress passed you know a bill that militarize the police and authorize mass SWAT raids. It's, it's something that's been gradual and building up, been building up for uh, a generation or more.
1: Is this stuff necessary to protect officer safety or the public safety, though? For example, you mentioned nonviolent drug offenders or people who haven't been convicted of drug offenses yet. But like, I've seen enough movies from the 1980s to know that drug dealers carry a lot of firepower. Um, and so it would seem like you send a beat cop with his revolver in there and, you know, it may not turn out well for him. So maybe this force is helpful.
2: So there are a couple of ways, ways to address that. First, um, you know, the the vast majority of, police officer killings where a police officer is, you know, feloniously killed on the job are killed with low, with small caliber handguns, right? So the idea that most police officers are killed with these massive guns or the massive firepower that you saw in Miami vice, for example, I'm um, just, isn't borne out by the data. Um, the other thing is I would argue that these, these types of raids actually make things more dangerous for police officers. I mean, when you wake somebody up in their own home in their own bed in the middle of the night with armed, you know, men breaking into their home, uh, usually masked and dressed all in black, uh, you you elicit a very visceral kind of primitive response in people, a, a fight or flight response. And if flight isn't an option, uh, people are going to fight. Uh, and so we've had, you know, numerous examples where people where somebody, an innocent person was raided and, and reached for a gun and shot and killed a cop or was shot and killed themselves or, you know, injured police officers, but also even drug dealers, right? I mean, Uh, I've interviewed a lot of former police chiefs for my book, people who uh, are from an era where drug warrants weren't served this way, where they were served, just like you said, a a uniformed officer came and knocked on the door uh, and they had no problem. And what they said is that, you know, people don't go into drug dealing to kill police officers, right? They come to drug dealing to make money and uh, they know that killing a police officer means, you're going to be lucky to survive the next five or six seconds, uh, and if you do, you're you're going to prison for the rest of your life. And if you live in a death penalty state, you're probably going to get the death penalty. Um, so I think even in in cases where the police are raiding a, a somebody who has drugs in the home who, who fires back at the police, um, usually they'll say they didn't know that they're police; they thought they were rival drug dealers. And I think there's a uh, that there's a lot of sort of that makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, but there are, there are there are options you know other than just either coming in guns blazing in the middle of the night or sending a single uniformed officer. Um, there's a process called surround and call out where you bring a lot of officers and you bring your bulletproof truck and you surround a place and you get on a megaphone and you ask the person to come out. Um, or you, you, you apprehend them as they're coming or going, or you set up some sort of ruse where you're able to apprehend them. Um, and this is actually what police tend to do when they have suspects who are actually violent or people who they are actually fearful, you know, will will open fire on police officers. Um, they take the time to to take these extra measures, these extra protective measures. Problem with, with doing surrounding call out or or some sort of ruse when it comes to searching drug warrants, and I've had police officials flat out admit this to me, is that there's just too damn many of them. Um if you're a police department that's serving 15 or 20 drug warrants a week. Uh, you don't have time to do surround and call out. It's a lot easier to just kick somebody's door down in the middle of the night.
0: How much did an alcohol prohibition change policing in this country? Because you kind of alluded to this, and it's something I've written about, that when you start prohibiting, you have to start having victimless crimes because usually when someone commits a crime or so when someone has a crime committed against them, like you, you have your house robbed or you get assaulted, you call the police and you ask them to come to your house and to take evidence in order to find the perpetrator of this crime. But if you are both the, Criminal and the victim, like the purported criminal and the victim, because you put a substance into your body, now the police have to do something very different in order to find the criminal, so to speak, because you're not giving you're not asking them to come in and give evidence up, so then they have to start adopting tactics that are very different than standard you know interpersonal crime when there are victims they have to start surveilling and investigating and doing, you know, st- pumping your stomach and kicking down doors because you gotta, you might get rid of the evidence and things like this. It seems to me that might've all kind of started during alcohol prohibition.
2: I mean, there are definitely similarities. I mean, I think we saw kind of a ramping up of police power during alcohol prohibition. then uh, it kind of um, uh, evolving back down when it was repealed and then it gets fired back up for the drug war. But, but I think the, the similarities are inescapable, right? I mean, you, you, First of all, you're fighting this war based on dirty information, right? Because you don't have direct victims to report these crimes. Um, You're relying on uh, informants. You're relying on tips from rival drug dealers. You're relying on anonymous phone calls. Uh, And if the police don't do their due diligence and do their collaborative, um, uh, corroborative, excuse me, uh, investigation, uh, a lot of times you're you're going to Uh, have people accused who are innocent and when the consequence of that uh, of having an innocent person being accused based on bad information is that the police kick down your door in the middle of the night and put a gun in your face those are pretty serious consequences and those are you know pretty uh they're consequences that can can have pretty drastic um implications for the people on the receiving end of these raids um the other thing though is is when you have laws that can only be enforced uh, by the police themselves breaking those laws, uh, which is the case, I think, with alcohol prohibition, drug prohibition, and most consensual crimes. Um, you you instill in the police officers who work that beat or who are on that beat uh, a sense that kind of the law doesn't matter, right? If they're allowed to break the law in order to catch drug dealers, if they're allowed to instruct informants to break the law in order to catch drug dealers, that Is a whole different kind of policing than somebody who's going out on a beat and enforcing the laws, uh, you know, as they see them broken. Um, And I've had, uh, I I spoke to um, uh, Sue Rare, who's uh, with the Police Executive Research Forum now, uh, but used to be the sheriff in uh, King County, Washington, Seattle. Uh, And she made a great point, which is that uh, she would never let her police officers be in narcotics for more than three or four years. And the reason was that, being in mar- narcotics for a long period of time changes the way you look at the job. It changes the way you look at policing and changes the way you look at yourself. Um, when you are allowed to break the same laws you're enforcing, it creates kind of a sense of, of uh, that, that you're above the law, that, that you can you could also maybe break other laws as long as you have good reason or as long as the ends justifies the means. Uh, so I think both of those things, I think the fact that you have to fight these wars based on dirty information and the fact that the police have to break the very laws uh, that, they, that they're that they enforcing uh, this is one of many ways. I think these are one, or two of many ways that the drug war really kind of corrupts law enforcement from the top down.
1: How much of the problem now then is is a result of, I guess, internal incentives? Like it's easier to use these kind of tactics than less dangerous or less violent alternatives, or it's cheaper for budgetary reasons or whatever. Versus cultural, in the sense that if the cops have a bunch of military equipment. um, and are able to use it, they're attracting potentially the kind of people who want to bust heads and drive around in tanks.
2: Right. It's both. I mean, it, it's definitely both. Um, I think that the there are really perverse incentives. Uh, so, for example, there are federal grants that are tied solely to drug policing and are based on the no, just sheer numbers of arrests, um, which encourages you know police to go out and sort of you know crack as many heads as possible. Um, there are, there's asset forfeiture policies, you know, SWAT teams are once you you, you get all that equipment and it's all free from the Pentagon or from DHS or whomever. Uh, But then once you have it, you have to maintain it and that can get a little bit expensive. And so now there's an incentive to use your SWAT team uh, for drug enforcement because drug enforcement brings the possibility of asset forfeiture. Whereas most other types, you know, you're walking a beat or, um, you know, uh, uh, responding to domestic calls, whatever, you know, all the other sort of uh, day-to-day mundanities of policing don't generally come with that, that possibility. Um, but then, you know, again, once you have that stuff, you want to use it. Um, the, 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 there are two sides, I think to police militarization. One is the gear uh, the stuff that they're getting from the military, from DHS, from other places. Um, and then there's the mindset problem, and that's, you know, police sort of seeing themselves as troops, as soldiers, seeing themselves as psychologically kind of isolated from the rest of the community. Um, the idea that, you know, that, that there's police and there's everybody else, or there's police and their families and there's everybody else. And these two things reinforce one another, right? Um, you get the gear, and the gear is inappropriate for domestic police work, but then you have it, you start to see yourself as a little bit of a soldier, Um, maybe the community that you're supposed to be serving starts to see you less as an officer who's there to help them and more as kind of an occupying force. You're going to start to see people in the community, not as the people you're serving as citizens with rights, but as a potential threat. Um, and so you see this throughout kind of policing culture today. If you go on online bulletin boards, if you go to, um, sites like lawofficer.com or policing.com, um, you'll see this this kind of mentality, uh, whatever I have to do to get home at night or this idea that police are constantly under attack. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, policing has gotten safer since about the early 1990s. There are some, uh, uh, you know, jumps and dips in the number of police officers feloniously killed each year, but for the most part, it's been trending down for about 30 years now. Um, so, you know, the idea that every police officer kind of has a target on their back and that they need to be constantly vigilant and that everybody is a potential threat and every interaction could be their last. Um, not only is it not true not backed up by the data, but it really creates a lot of tension and animosity between police and the community they serve. And it's also just, it's kind of a miserable, res- miserable existence for a police officer, right? I mean, if, if um, you know, you don't have any kind of relationships on your job with, with people, aren't police officers, if all your interactions with non-cops on your job are hostile, um, that's kind of a miserable work experience. Um, It also just puts people on edge. I mean, you know, uh, if you're told that everybody's a potential threat, if you're told that there's a target on your back, you're going to be more likely to see an innocent gesture as a furtive one, right? You're going to be more likely to kind of rule, uh, your actions are going to be ruled more by your um, uh, kind of limbic system than your frontal lobe. Uh, and I think that's a problem as well.
0: How does, I mean, when we're talking about criminal justice and and maybe especially policing, uh, we can't not discuss race issues. And it's interesting because something I've written about too, we use the rhetoric of war, war on drugs, war on crime. And one of the interesting things about war in the more uh, the real sense of the word war, the, the international kind of foreign, foreign conflict problem is that dehumanizing your, the opponent is kind of essential to fighting a war. I mean, unless you, you need, you need your soldiers to think that they are, you know, not, they're not Germans, they're Huns, you know, and have your cartoons and all this stuff because otherwise you're just murdering people. Um, I feel like that's similar to what's hap- what you have to do, here and race plays a big factor in that when it comes to making war on our own citizens. Yep,
2: no, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you see the dehumanization and in, in rhetoric, uh, drug war rhetoric going back to the Nixon administration. You know, referring to people as vermin or cockroaches or or you know, uh, just kind of denying people their basic humanity. And and you know, there's been a a push in, in the drug drug war drug law reform movement for a long time toward Uh, treating addiction as a a health issue instead of a criminal issue. And, you know, the problem with that, if you're a drug warrior, is if you start to see people with drug problems as people with a health problem and not as people who are breaking the law, it becomes a lot more difficult to to dehumanize them. And I think that's one reason why you've seen, you know, there there was long such resistance uh, on the kind of law and order right to, uh, acknowledging that drug addiction is a health issue and not some sort of moral or, or human failing um, but I think that you know I think you're 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 absolutely right and as far as you know race goes um, I, you know going back to nineteen teens and 20s and 30s um, you know the drug war uh, alcohol prohibition all these kind of wars on substances have always been, about othering, you know, a certain ethnic group uh, and uh, the drug wars, certainly, you know, the modern drug war, I think, is certainly a continuation of that.
1: What role do judges play in all this? Because they presumably are not subject to the same incentives or part of the same culture as the police officers, and they have to approve these warrants before the SWAT team can bust in, right? Right. <laughs>
2: They do. Um, I think there, there are two, two ways that the courts have contributed to the problem. Um, one is I think the appellate courts, um, from the Supreme Court to the federal appeals courts to state Supreme Courts, um, you know, have, have really contributed to the problem by creating this for- drug war exception to the Fourth Amendment. Um, and that's been happening for, you know, going back to the late fifties, basically, um, if not further. Um, the drug war has, you know, I, I talk in the book a lot about the Castle Doctrine and this idea that the home should be a place of, place of peace and sanctuary, and this is where the knock-and-announce requirement comes from. And the courts have, have basically obliterated uh, the knock-and-announce requirement. It, it still kind of technically exists in name, uh, but there's no consequence when police uh, violate it, even egregiously. Um, the, the Supreme Court has ruled that the, the exclusionary rule won't apply when police uh, violate the knock-and-announce rule. Um, there's... Rarely, if any, ever, uh, rarely, if ever, any uh, discipline for police officers when they violate the rule. Um, And, you know, with qualified immunity, it's extremely difficult to win a lawsuit. There's just a case um, uh, a couple weeks ago where a police officer or a SWAT team raided this elderly man. And the SWAT team actually knew that they were raiding the wrong house because they got to the house and the address didn't match. um, And they just sort of assumed that maybe the error was on the other end not on their end and they raided the house anyway and the federal courts ruled that they had qualified immunity because they couldn't find another case in which a court had explicitly said that raiding the wrong house intentionally is a violation of the fourth amendment um so that's kind of the, the role i think that the supreme court and the appellate courts have played um but then just day-to-day judges have really um abrogated their their constitutional duty to protect the Fourth Amendment. Um, I would love to see a study on how, what percentage of search warrants are approved versus denied, what percentage of particularly no-knock search warrants are approved versus denied. Um, I haven't, there isn't a recent study that's kind of directly on point. Uh, there are some studies from the 80s and early 90s, though, that show that, um, uh, you know, judges almost never reject search warrants. Um, they reject specifically no-knock warrants maybe a tiny bit more often. Um, but, you know there's almost no scrutiny there have been studies showing that judges have granted no knock warrants even when police didn't request them um and i've my own reporting over the last several years has found mo- lots of examples of this um in uh, little rock arkansas uh, i reviewed about 100 warrants that were conducted over about a two and a half year period all all no knocks and in every case the warrant itself was illegal the police had uh, under supreme court precedent the police have to If they want to conduct a no knock raid, they have to provide specific information as to why this particular suspect poses a risk to police if they knock and announce. You can't just use boilerplate language, you know, saying all drug dealers are dangerous, therefore we have to use a no knock. And, but that's exactly what the Little Rock Police Department was doing. They just used the same word for word language in every single warrant and requested a no knock every single time. And with the exception of maybe one or two cases, the judges signed the warrant every single time. Um, and the reason why they get away with that is, you know, this is, a it is a clear egregious, you know, no debate about it, violation of Supreme court's ruling in this case, um, uh, Richard versus Wisconsin, which says that you can't just use this kind of boilerplate language. Uh, and yet nothing happened. Uh, the judges, one of the judges who signed all the, signed about half the warrants, um, now has a, a higher judicial office. Uh, the other is retired. Um, the, the police officers who, who sought the illegal warrants nothing has happened to any of them, um, and the reason for that is because again, the Supreme Court created this rule in 1997, but then in 2006 with um, Hudson versus Michigan, they basically said, okay, we have this rule, the police have to knock and announce before they come in, but. We're not going to give them any, or there's no reason. We're not going to enforce it. Um, there's not going to be any penalty if they violate the rule. And so the police have since basically violated the rule with impunity. Judges don't even bother sort of enforcing it anymore. Um, and it's not just Little Rock. I mean, this is we saw similar examples in Louisville after the Brianna Taylor, uh, uh, after the death of Breonna Taylor. I've written about similar examples in South Carolina. Um, and I bet if you if, if if somebody you know paid the money to do a kind of comprehensive look. Uh, across the country, at how these warrants are applied for and granted by judges, we would find it's very similar. My, my guess is that we find a very, very tiny percentage of, of judges uh, ever deny police a search warrant. Uh, those that do, the police know not to go to those judges anymore, so they could seek out judges that are less, you know, provide less scrutiny. Um, but also, that I think we would see that a lot of these warrants are, are illegal, and nothing's being done about it.
0: We hear about these botched raids quite often, and it's it's sort of stunning. I mean, I don't think the police are usually doing botched SWAT raids, and of course, the ones that get reported are not maybe representative of the whole, but it seems to happen a disturbingly large number of times in ways that are sort of just gratuitously erroneous. Like, you could have just looked up the address, as you pointed out. Um, is this just because the police I – mean, do you think this is directly tied to the fact that they don't really care? I mean, they're viewing everyone as subhuman, and there's no consequences. And maybe they're not even worried about the safety of their fellow officers because they're dressed like soldiers, so they just don't really care about making mistakes.
2: I think that's part of it. I, mean, I think they don't—they don't feel like it's dangerous to them because they're on—you know—they're on the giving end of this, right? They—they they know what's going to happen. They have the advantage. They're taking the other people by surprise. And look, I mean, if there are candid interviews with the SWAT officers, there's a great one in. Um, the documentary "Do Not Resist," uh, where they go to a, one of these SWAT meetups, these kind of SWAT competitions, and they talk to some owners, and they flat out admit that it's a huge rush to go on one of these raids. Right? It's uh, you get the, a lot of adrenaline going, and uh, you know it's it's apparently a lot of fun <laughs> for them. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm speaking very broadly and very generally here, but uh, you know, I do think that there's. Um, a kind of disregard for the rights of the people who are then receiving into this uh, of these raids because you know because they're yeah because they're drug users they're they're morally weak they're you know they're uh, um, uh, criminals basically uh, and I think that's the way that the police look at it but I, I also think you know there's there's all of that uh, but then also there are no consequences for getting it wrong right um, the courts have basically ruled that if you if the police raid a wrong house because they made a mistake. Uh, you know, as long as you can't prove that the mistake was intentional, which is pretty much impossible, and, and in most cases probably isn't the case. It's just a lack of, of diligence and, and you know, doing your your um, corroborative investigation. Um, but unless you can show it's intentional, you're not, you know, nothing's going to happen to them. Um, and, you know, for the level of violence that comes with one of these raids, the fact that there are no consequences For mistakenly kind of visiting that violence on the wrong person, yeah, ought to trouble us (laughs) to say the least.
1: How much of all of this is the result of racism, or at least racially motivated? Because if we listen to the, we've had the protests over the last year, and a lot of conversation about criminal justice reform, and a lot of it has focused on racism within policing and criminal justice.
2: Yeah, so you know it's always difficult to kind of isolate how much race is a motivating factor, right? We know that uh, that the, that the drug war was waged with kind of racist intent and racist justifications and and racist stereotypes of various groups that uh, that aren't true. We also know that it, that that continues to be the case, right? There's there are multiple studies. I mean, the, the data on this is overwhelming uh, in multiple cities, showing that while black people are much more likely to be searched, uh, when they're pulled over, uh, they are, they are less likely to actually be carrying contraband. Uh, so the police are more suspicious of black people than white people, even though, uh, you know, white people, uh, who are pulled over at least, uh, are more likely to have some sort of illegal substance on them. Um, and, you know, uh, we see the rust rates compared to usage rates, uh, and all of it, you know, Strongly points to a drug war that is um, disproportionately directed at non-white people and, and black people in particular. Um, it's always difficult to to you know delve into the motivations of individual police officers or individual uh, you know of individual SWAT team, uh, but we know that you know in policing in general that there is a problem with race. We know over the last three or four years we've seen multiple reports about where where, uh, people investigators have looked into social media posts by police officers and we see a disturbingly high percentage of officers have posted you know racist uh put racist stuff on facebook or twitter or uh in online for other online forums or have um you know sort of glorified police violence uh anti you know muslim posts um and you know we also see just kind of a glorification of violence in police culture in general. I've heard a lot about police t-shirts, for example, that you see uh, like during police week in Washington DC or the police union sell, and they're, you know, awful. They're, they, they glamorize violence. They're, they dehumanize people. Uh, a lot of times they're, they're pretty, they're explicitly racist. Um, so, you know, obviously I'm not saying all police officers are racist. I do think, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there is a, Uh, race problem uh, within policing. I think there are, there's institutional racism policing, which is that there are, are, we have a system that was kind of designed and honed during a period in our country's history where there were explicitly racist policies, right? Jim Crow, for example. A lot of those institutions are still with us. I think it's a mistake to think that we've we've somehow purged all of the kind of racist intent from those institutions, just because, you know, Jim Crow ended, you know, Whatever it ended officially, I don't know, uh, the late sixties, maybe. Um, but then, you know, within, so there's that and, and institutional racism, is I think is going to exist independent of the motivations of individual police officers. But then I also think that we have seen, you know, through some of these reports that there are a lot of problems with, with bias, uh, and racism with individual officers as well. Um, at the post, I've got an ongoing kind of, um, uh, piece where I just have been accumulating academic literature on race in the criminal justice system. And yeah, the, the, the numbers are pretty overwhelming. Uh, even when you account for crime rates, um, you know, between black and, and the black and white populations, black people are, are, are clearly, um, over policed. Um, and, uh, I'm rambling a little bit. Uh, well, I think that's part of that's the story. Back. The
0: story you tell, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I agree with you, but you also made a good point that, I use an example from your last book at Ever King and Country Dentist, where there there are things that can start for racist purposes. As you point out in that book, Mississippi lacked a credible death investigation system for most of the 20th century because they were using it to exonerate lynchings. But by the time you got to the 80s, there was a different group. There were different interest groups that had formed around what was originally a racist policy, and this happens a lot, In in right? So you might have started the drug war because you didn't like Mexicans very much to say, let's say, prohibition of marijuana. But then by the time you're trying to get rid of it in California in 2009 or 10, when the first time, it's the prison guard unions that want to keep marijuana prohibition. And they may not be racist at all. They just want a job. And and it was the prosecutors and the and the AGs, you know, in Mississippi who didn't want to have a credible death investigation system. Um, and they, there's a lot of these around here, like the cops like their they like their gear, they like the way they do their job. They maybe they enjoy cracking heads, and some of them are racist. But then there are other groups around them, like police officers' unions, that are just protecting what they think are the interests of police officers. So I think it's important, like, to point out that this stuff is actually. Intermixed with so many different interest groups, that including just out and out racists, but then things that are sort of racially institutionalized, but maybe not performed by out and out racists.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And you know, I, I, particularly over the last couple of years, I've you know got into debates and discussions with libertarians on this issue, and it, it kind of baffles me why uh, I'm baffled by why libertarians and even conservatives, to a certain extent have such a difficult time admitting that something is racist. Um, It it doesn't hurt me to admit that the criminal justice system is racist as a white person, right? Um, That doesn't, there's no skin off my back uh, on that. Uh, And, but there is this extreme reluctance. And, you know, as libertarians, as libertarian, especially, um, you know, the idea of racist policing or racially, you know, uh, disproportionate policing or or the over-policing of black people, what that means is that it means that, There are a lot of people in this country who are going to be unfairly accused, unfairly arrested, unfairly searched, unfairly targeted uh, because they belong to a group that is assumed, probably truthfully, to commit more crimes. Right? So you're treating people, you're you're using government force and coercion against someone, not because of something they did, but because they belong to a group who you think uh, commits more crimes and you know as a libertarian that is that ought to offend the hell out of us right the government should be should be judging us and, and accusing us based on what we actually did not what they not based on what people who looked like us did um, and i don't think there's anything you know uh, unlibertarian about um, recognizing that this happens in government and and being opposed to it and working to stop it
1: related to that though is there a concern that a too much of a focus on on race as the driver of so many of these things might get in the way of meaningful reform because it would get people thinking if we can just get rid of the racism, everything will be good, or has them overlooking problems that don't tie into that particular kind of subnarrative of criminal justice. Uh, you know,
2: I understand that argument, and and you know, I think maybe there's there is some merit to it to some extent. Um, I will say, though, that, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter has been more successful than, you know, those of us who have been beating this drum for 20 years at actually getting real police reform implemented. Um, and, you know, they've done that through the lens of kind of racial justice. Right. But white people benefit from these police reforms as well. I mean, if you go to like the Campaign Zero webpage and you look at their their recommendations for police, re- for police reform, that's all driven from uh, a... a Kind of racial justice viewpoint, but, but, you know, white people will benefit if police initiate those policies, if we abolish qualified immunity, if, you know, so I, I'm hesitant to say that, that putting a, uh, that that viewing a lot of the problems of the criminal justice system through race is going to hamper reform. I think there's, there's good evidence that it has actually helped reform. Now, that said, um, you know, white people are victims of police abuse and police misconduct. It happens all the time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I think it's, it's wrong to pretend otherwise. I think that there are problems in policing and the criminal justice system that are racially motivated. I think there are problems that have nothing to do with race and are more about sort of power and control. Uh, but I also think that even those problems are exacerbated by, by race and the country's history with race. Um, but, you know, I'll give you a good example, sort of, from the book. Um, so when the first book first came out, it, you know, it got very positive reviews. Uh, but the one one criticism I kept seeing over and over again from some quarters is that uh, the book was the examples that I used in the book were primarily white people, um, white people accused of of basically marijuana related crimes. And in my original manuscript, which was about twice as long as the book, I had a lot more of examples, more examples, and and some examples that did include black people. They got cut for various reasons mostly because when we were when we were editing uh, and trying to cut the manuscript down, we chose cases that best kind of illustrated a particular point that the book was trying to make. Um, but in doing so, we cut out a lot of examples of black people. And so I, I think it is a valid criticism that the book, uh, that the anecdotes in the book to kind of illustrate points, paint, a, portray a picture of who's victimized by the drug war that probably isn't entirely accurate. And I, I tried to remedy that a little bit in this update. Um, but there's a reason for that. Um, the reason why the cases involving white people were were more apt to illustrate a particular point is because those are the cases where the victim uh, had a platform, uh, because probably because they were white in large part, but they were able to get a lawyer to take the case, or they're, they were able to get a journalist to look into the case, or they're, you know, uh, they got a lawyer and the resulting lawsuit flushed out facts about the case that you know, we're probably hidden in a lot of these raids on black people because black people, when you're a black person and you're subject to one of these raids, it's hard, you know, to get people interested, uh, much less, you know, believe that you're innocent. Uh, and so what we find are that the cases where police have victimized white people in these cases tend to be the ones that kind of blow everything up, that expose, you know, the fundamental problems in the system and the, the repeat problems, um, the incentive issues, um, it tends to be white people or very sympathetic black people like the 92 the year old woman, Catherine Johnston, uh, who was killed in a police raid in Atlanta uh, in 2006. Um, those are the cases that, you know, get public sympathy, that get investigations going, that get reforms. Um, but when you look back at that, since those are the cases that get all the attention, the attention uh, you know, if you're not following the stuff closely, you could be, you know, forgiven for for thinking that most of these raids target white people because those are the cases that you tend to read about.
0: I, I completely agree about that. About libertarians, and it's sort of odd how some libertarians or people who call themselves libertarians resist these kind of uh, racially tinged language. Whereas, I mean, on the in addition to your points, you know, if we understand that the power of the state can be wielded by the people who win elections the people who create the interest groups and then they can use the power of the state to pursue their interests that are against the interests of the people who lost the election uh well we also then understand that if a bunch of those people are racist then they're using the power of the state uh, to pursue their racist policies against another race um and so a lot of as you you know write in the book like the Watts riots were a huge you know signpost on this story of a bunch of uh, people being, you know, white people being very, very afraid. And that's when we get the first SWAT team and we start seeing a lot of the policing in black neighborhoods, or at least maybe the quote unquote demand for the drug war coming from white people and the cost of that being put onto black people, which is something we shouldn't be for when it comes to the state's obligation to treat people the same, as you pointed out.
2: It's, it's a recurring story too, right? Um, so in the update to the book, One of the the cities I look at is Chicago um, in some detail because Chicago uh, never really kind of experienced the drop in violent crime that the rest of the country did. And, you know, people have always assumed that the reason for that is gang culture or, you know, black culture, black on black crime, whatever you want to call it. Um, But, but, you know, Chicago also has a long history of police abuse and misconduct going back to the John Burge, you know, torture scandal of the 1980s, which, frankly, you know, was only recently resolved. I mean, they only established reparations for the victims. And I think it was 2013 or 2014. Um, but then you have, you know, Laquan McDonald, you've got, uh, the Chicago police union, you've got, uh, multiple examples of, 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 uh, police oversight, uh, boards in Chicago that have been captured by the police unions that they're supposed to be overseeing. Uh, you've got, you know, multiple incidents of officers, you know, lying. You've got, uh, uh, a small percentage of officers with an overwhelming number of complaints against them who were never disciplined. And the amazing thing is when I was researching for the update to the book, I found this report uh, from a blue ribbon commission that had been put together in the 1970s after uh, the police uh, killed a black motorist after pulling him over. I think it was for some sort of traffic violation. Uh, there was a lot of outrage about it. And there was this commission that was formed. The commission wrote, the, wrote a report that talked about, you know, the problems with policing in Chicago. Well, after the Laquan McDonald shooting, actually not after the shooting, about a year later after the city was forced to release the video and then forced to admit that the shooting was unjustified, there was another commission that was formed to write another report about Chicago policing. Uh, And the Chicago Reader compared the two reports, which were about 40 years apart, and the conclusions that they came to were remarkably similar. I mean, they talk about there's no accountability, how the officers in charge of investigating other officers tend to You know, uh, prod them to give the right answers. They'd let them collaborate their stories. Uh, They talk about black people being afraid of being pulled over by officers. They talk about how black complaints against white officers are, you know, not even investigated. Uh, And it was just kind of stunning. I mean, in some cases, the language was almost uh, uh, verbatim, uh, outlining the problems. And these two reports were 40 years apart and almost nothing had changed.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that kind of goes to some of how we kind of fix this stuff too, because I mean, the racism is a problem, and how this, but we have the militarization, which which you know is again used on white people quite often too. These swap raids, and I've had calls uh, and consultations with Black Lives Matter people and Campaign Zero people about what to do. And one of the things that I've told them is that you know, although they they have been successful, you know, more than more than anyone else in the last twenty years, but it's is that. Sometimes you just need to take away their toys, you know, giving them implicit bias training or something like this, which is the kind of thing that the police union would try and make a concession on that they'll have training to take away their racist bias. Whereas, I mean, I'm scared of something like that because it's an empty, it's an, it's an empty solution that doesn't actually do anything. Whereas I just want to take away their toys. I mean, I think if you have, if they have tanks, they will use them. And due to all these factors we've discussed, they will use them disproportionately. Um, on African Americans, so so I'm you know much more pragmatic in the sense of I c- I can't rewrite the cops' minds to be less racist, but we can take away their toys as a start.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, although you know, I mean, we're never going to have an unarmed police force, right? I mean, they're always going to have guns. Oh, I mean, like I mean, the tanks. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, like the guns ones guns. that they yeah. use. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, the implicit bias stuff. I've I've seen the studies that doesn't work. I've also talked to black police officers who have attended those classes and say they don't work because. They're not designed to work. Right. They're 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 designed to sort of check off boxes so that the police department can then say, you know, yes, we we gave everybody implicit bias training. Um, there's not the, the effort isn't really there to actually, you know, make officers aware of their own bias and teach them how to kind of think their way out of it. It's just uh, we're just going to let everybody sit through this class so that we can tell the federal government that we did it. Um but, you know, uh, I don't know that it works or it doesn't work. I do think, you know, I think I'm, I'm much more interested in tangible kind of substantive reforms like, um, uh, you know, like you said, taking some of the the, the the gear work, but also but also just things like uh, we just need to remove the opportunity for these t- bad incidents to happen, right? Um, so it's getting police out of traffic enforcement, for example. So you don't have the situation where you have an armed officer confronting you over a very, very minor offense. In a very kind of fraught and and difficult encounter, right? He's on the side of the road. Cars are whizzing by. Cops are sort of have it hammered into their heads from the police academy that, like, you know, every stop on any traffic stop, somebody could, you know, ambush you and pull out a gun and blow you away. Um, which you know, it happens three or four times a year out of I don't know how many million stops, but enough that you know there are lots of videos to circulate. So um, you have this incredibly tense kind of situation where you've got a cop who's, you know, sees every stop as a potential shootout. You've got uh, motorists, particularly black and brown motorists who don't trust the police, who are worried about getting searched, who are worried about, you know, things escalating. There's no reason why the police should be doing that. Um, you know, it can be done with, as a libertarian, it pains me to say this, but I think it's the better option of the two. It can be done with traffic cameras. Um, we could also engineer and design our roads better so that we don't need as many rules, Right you know, roundabouts instead of stop signs, that kind of thing. Um, we could also uh, just uh, enforce traffic laws less. <laughs> um, uh, you know, speed limits are pretty artificial for the most part. They're not, they're not the result of some study to find the optimal safe speed in that particular zone. Uh, it's basically, in a lot of cases, they're they're artificially low in order to generate revenue for the local government. Uh, so we can get police out of that altogether. We can get police out of the schools. There's no data showing that police school resource officers actually make schools safer. We can uh, uh, we can start funding um, violence interruption groups. And here's another area where I think you know libertarians we could we could um, not even change the way we think about it, but just kind of be open to this idea. I've, I've written about these groups like Cure Violence. Um, they you know what they do is they try to intervene. Uh, before the violence and the, the kind of retaliatory violence starts escalating and a lot of times they'll hire kind of former gang members or people you know from the neighborhoods where violence is happening and study after study after study has shown that they're effective at uh, reducing uh, violence and reducing homicides in particular uh, both um, sort of chronologically so when when they're when they're well funded violence tends to go down but also geographically the neighborhoods where they operate tend to have lower, violent crime figures, um, after they start operating there. And yeah, as a libertarian, if, uh, if I can spend, you know, uh, the amount of money I'd have to pay for salary and benefits for 10 police officers, and I can hire a hundred of these violence interrupters and get the same reduction in violent crime, or even a better reduction, uh, it, in a way, and the reduction is, is is achieved in a way that it uses less force and coercion and there's less opportunity for escalation and, you know, violence and tragedy, why wouldn't we go for that option? You know, I mean, it's uh, it seems to work. Um, there's also Cahoots program out of Eugene that's spreading across the country where when somebody is having a mental health crisis and they call 911, instead of sending a SWAT team, which is, to me has always been the most absurd possible way you can react to that kind of situation, they send a paramedic and a counselor Um And that's been enormously effective everywhere that it's been tried.
1: Over the last few years, and particularly over the last year, we've seen a wave of progressive and reform prosecutors elected, a a sustained criminal justice reform movement, and even what looks like a possible winding down of the drug war. Are, Are these lasting and meaningful changes, or at least do you think maybe we're on the cusp of getting lasting and meaningful changes?
2: I think some of them will be. I hope some of them will be. I mean, I, I've never seen the kind of substantive um, reforms that we've seen since the protests last year. Um, you know, in the almost 20 years or so, I've been covering police militarizations and these raids. Um, I've never before this year, never in any state or any city, have I seen a serious proposal to end or limit no-knock raids. Um, there have been a, a few sort of individual police chiefs who implemented policies to uh, cut down on them, but since the since Breonna Taylor, since the George Floyd protests, uh, literally dozens of cities across the country have banned no-knock raids, and in a couple states. Um, and these are you know, some of them are problematic. Some of them have loopholes that are, they're way too big for my taste. Some of them have a problem with a lack of enforcement of an enforcement mechanism. Some of them are very good. Uh, Virginia, the Virginia law ban on no knocks, um, I think is great. Uh, I think it's, uh, the only thing I would add is it needs a provision, you know, requiring officers to be wearing body cameras when they conduct these raids. But, um, I've never seen that kind of legislative action, uh, you know, that we've seen over the last year. Also, you know, similar legislation on, um, Uh, chokeholds on de-escalation training, uh, you know, across the board, we've seen a lot of really strong substance reforms at the state and local level, Uh, nothing at the federal level, of course. Um, But by the same token, we've seen lots of state legislatures pass these bills that, you know, limit the liability of people who run over protesters with their cars. Um, And with the result of the surge in uh, homicides we've seen over the last year, uh, I think, you know, there's going to be some backlash. We're going to see probably some some progressive prosecutors get beaten. We're probably going to see some reforms get rolled back um, in, you know, particularly conservative states. You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm hoping my hope is that the homicide surge is related to the pandemic and the, you know, once in a lifetime weird phenomenon aberrant phenomenon that was 2020 and, and that we're going to see things start to go back to normal. Um, but I don't know, uh, you know, the, the, the bad policies that we got that resulted in mass incarceration that resulted in the evisceration of the Fourth Amendment that resulted in, you know, a lot of the problems we have in the criminal justice system today were the result of policies that were passed in response to soaring crime rates. Um, and hopefully we've learned from that and hopefully we'll be kind of more nuanced and careful and less reactionary in how we we'll respond to this latest um, homicide surge, but um, I don't know. Uh, as a politician, it's, you know, much, much easier to support, you know, getting tough on crime policies uh, because, like Bastiak argued with economic policies, I think the, the cost of those policies tend to be hidden, uh, whereas it's very easy to um, you know, tie a, a rise in murder to a more progressive DA's office, you know, despite the fact that spike in homicides has happened all over the country, including in cities that have pretty conservative prosecutors.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.